I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, Reimagining Resistance. From the small screen to the streets, the erasure of black women. For our first discussion, Missing Black Women from the Small Screen, Oscar-winning writer John Ridley in hot water for his new TV series, Gorilla. And in part two, Missing Black Girls on the streets of DC and across America. No national headlines, no urgency. Why is media and society so slow to react to and search for missing black girls? All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Christina Greer and Kirsten West-Savali. Dr. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University and the author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Kirsten West-Savali is a writer and award-winning journalist currently serving as editor of TheRoot.com. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thanks, Esther. Thank you, Esther. Gorilla. That's the name of a new TV series by Oscar winner John Ridley and another award winner who also stars in the series, Idris Elba. It's the story of the black power movement in the UK. Excited? So was I. Here's the trailer. The government lies to you. It oppresses you. What we do has to be about ideals. We want the police to be held accountable. I'll be the Leaders, if that's what's required, then that's what we'll be. You're here because you were black. We are the children of the colonies who built this empire on the backs of their labor. Strong in our pride. The soldiers and soldiers fight. We're going to give them something to remember. Do you tell the police where to find us? Just trying to keep you from getting killed. This is the declaration of a state of war. To the oppressed, know that you don't struggle alone. Power to the people. During the Black Power movement in the UK, black women were front and central. They let, they organized, they strategized. And here was a TV show about this movement. Except... There are no black women leads in the series, none. In fact, in a TV series screening, the only black woman is an informant for some racist police. After a screening in London, there was a heated Q&A about this particular issue. Why, asked one black woman, were there no black women leads? One of the male lead actors, black actor Bubu Sese, who plays one of the two male leads, asked her, if she read that black women led in the UK's black power movement in a book somewhere. The woman said, no, our parents were in the movement and they told us. So an audience that included the children of the black power movement in the UK watched a series that totally erased their mothers. 
The series creator is John Ridley, an African-American man who, in 2014, won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for 12 Years a Slave. According to Ridley, this shouldn't be something to get angry about. The central relationship in the series is an interracial one, and he told the audience that was because he is in an interracial relationship. Hmm. So an African-American man rewrites the history of the Black Power movement in the United Kingdom, in England, because he happens to be in a mixed relationship. The additional larger issue is the erasure of black women from the telling of histories and movements in which they played central roles. The black power movement in the UK had women from the Caribbean, from West Africa, especially Nigeria and Ghana, united by a racist system that subjected them to violence, discrimination and second class citizenry. The UK movement connects to global black movements in America and in South Africa that battled racist, violent injustice in Kenya, too. When that history is retold in modern narratives on the small screen or the big screen, where black women are matters, that they are there matters. So let's talk missing black women there in the history, leading in the movement, overlooked and absent from the small and big screens, telling the story of that history. Dr. Christina Greer, let me start with you. I'm still just torn, or not even torn, but thrown back because... On the one hand, you know, we constantly have this conversation about the erasure of women of color in film. And so we're thinking about Scarlett Johansson taking over playing an Asian American and just this complete whitewashing of Hollywood. So we have this, what seems like a unified solidarity conversation about the need to have more women of color on the big screen representing what we can do, our acting chops, etc. But then you have this situation where it is not only is it deliberate, but Frida Pinto is front and center leading the charge. And granted, I have not seen all the movies. I've just seen these extended trailers, you know, assisting these black men and giving them, you know, the confidence and the backbone to stand up to the racist system when, quite honestly, it's just not true that this particular incident happened. But to erase black women from that narrative is just a fictitious narrative. So don't even say that it's the Black Panther Party in the UK. Make up a totally different name about what it is, because this is now just complete and total fiction. And so I just, I really want to know the motivation for Ridley beyond the fact that he's in an interracial relationship. That to me is not an adequate answer to why it is that he felt the need to have almost no black women as leaders in this very important story. And I think that his response is just as bad, if not worse, than the actual erasure of women in the first place. Kirsted West Savali? Your thoughts? To her point, she's absolutely right. It's adequate only to John Ridley. He has been a man who, you know, I spoke about him in 2014, even with 12 Years a Slave, that Esquire piece where he completely ignored the systemic structures of white supremacy, of racism, and he put in his own personal feelings, his own perverted personal feelings about what it is to be a black person. So now we fast forward now and you see him and he's injecting his own, his relationship his personal life to craft these stories that are not reflective of reality. So it's not surprising coming from him. And what I found really, really interesting is why he was so keen to say, you know, this is a reflection. I did it on purpose because of my relationship. And it's important that we show these, you know, this eclectic group of people. But he made sure that black men were visible. I found that really interesting. He did, he did not try to say, well, it's important that we put a strong man of color in the front here. 
you know, let's make sure we have black men at the forefront here. But, you know, the women are expendable. Let's just put anybody in here. And it doesn't have to be a black woman because black women's bodies, black women's contributions to movements are just, they're props. They're something that people just use. So I was not surprised by him at all in this instance, but it's, it's sickening, and it does speak to a larger issue. And I don't think his excuse of, oh, well, you know, Regina King got some Emmys and, you know, Lupita got an Oscar from movies and projects I've been involved in. It's like, well, we're not talking about those projects. We're talking about this project where Frida Pinto is essentially corralling these men, and you have women in the audience saying, my mother was in this movement. Why is she not in this alleged nonfiction narrative? Like, I don't understand why he needs to go out of his way to make sure women, black women aren't in the, in the film. And I'll even give him the lowest common denominator to say they don't need to be top billing in the film. Fine. If you don't want to do that, John Ridley, we're not expecting much from you. However, the fact that there are hardly any at all is it just it's so indicative of a much larger systemic institutional problem because it's not Esther, our our good friend Yaba Blay, who's a, a frequent guest on your show. We were on a panel last weekend together, and she made it very clear: you don't need white people for white supremacy. And I think that that is a really powerful point when you look at films like this. It's like you know you don't need a white director to erase black women anymore. You can have black directors doing it just as well, if not better, unfortunately. And what is so heinous for me is the idea that you want to negotiate the role that black women played whilst centralizing yourself. And this is a history that simply could not have happened. These are movements that could not have done what they had done if we were both not there. That the levels of racism that groups of men and women were facing, there's no way these movements would have grown without black women. So I, I really, I'm just so outraged by the idea that you want to sit and negotiate our right to be front and central. And I do push and say front and central. I do push and say Frida Pinto's character should have been played by a black woman. Now, because I was born in London, I definitely understand when they say that the movements had different people because the idea in the 70s was to politicize the word black, particularly when people started to look for political representation. But to be clear, and I know that John Ridley knows this. So the idea that you're going to try and navigate your way by using political terms as if anybody is confused is just ridiculous and don't insult our intelligence. So the idea that you then transpose history for your particular personal trauma or struggle or your uh, feeling lack of appreciation, I just find that so offensive. What I can't understand is make your own damn movie if that's what you're going to talk about. Why take a piece of really precious history and litter it with stories that are untrue, offend and insult those people who fought, put their bodies and their lives on their line, whose children are sitting in the audience to be literally told you were not there? And then the thing that always amazes me about these moments is then when those films are not supported by the people who you decided didn't matter, so they're not in the film, there becomes this additional narrative of the ways in which black women then do not support the art that black men make. And as a result of that lack of support, contribute to the failure of the film. This is not a new narrative. I'm outraged afresh just because of the combination of movements, because I'm thinking my dad was an activist in the independence movement in Ghana. 
I'm trying to imagine sitting in a screening of a film where you just erase my mother, who was in the house, who faced the, the, the guns of soldiers, and how, what I would do or feel like if you decided to tell, then tell the story of independence and think that there's simply no women in that story. The reality is, though, that is too often how the histories of the movements to liberate black people from injustice and racist violence have been told again and again and again. We are skilled at the erasure of black women, and we expect no consequences for that erasure. So then it makes me wonder, do we need to, to change our strategies of resistance around this reoccurring narrative? We know John Ridley is a serial offender when it comes to this. And the idea that you have the nerve to say, well, Lupita Nyong'o won an Oscar or this person won an Oscar, as if we're talking about the same thing. Two different nations, two different movements, and each black woman matters. You can't transpose Lupita's Oscar for Frida Pinto's starring role. I just find that just egregious, honestly. So do we need to reimagine what resistance looks like when it comes to this consistent narrative? Because how tired are we at getting outraged at the erasure of black women when it comes to the way history is told? Christina Greer. Well, I think we have to just constantly hold people accountable. And that also includes people who look like us. I mean, we can't just assume that just because John Ridley is an African-American man, that he gets it because he, clearly he does not. And it's not just erasing black women, but I go back to my point again, it's the doubling down of refusing to listen when we tell you this is not okay. I can't imagine that, you know, when he screened the film, you know, in its earlier iterations, that this wasn't brought up. I mean, there's so many books about the Black Panther Party that are written by women. This is a well-documented fact. I mean, when Angela Davis wasn't even terribly active, active in the forefront of the Black Panther movement, but she gets associated with it in many ways. I mean, that's the lowest hanging fruit. Like, start there and work your way forward. I just think it's so intellectually and creatively lazy that he has it, and then using his wife and his relationship as the prop to excuse this particular oversight. That, to me, is offensive. If I were his partner, I'd be offended. I'm offended just as a black woman because he chooses to sort of say, well, because this is my reality, then I want to put this on the big screen. But then just say it's a fictitious movie and don't say Black Panther Party. Come up with some completely other name and just make it a fun fan fiction. I mean, this is... It's so much deeper than that, though, because we know that also Hollywood rewards this type of behavior. He's not going to be punished for not having black women front and center, right? No one cares because we know that Hollywood is too busy trying to whitewash all narratives, and that goes for men and women. And so this is just another accolade that he'll receive, but it's, it's not based in any sort of truth or reality. And per usual, it's on the backs of black women. Kirsten Savelli. It's interesting because with John Ridley, what he said even more so than black women not being front and center, was that it did not matter. You know, it, as long as there was a woman of color. So not only is the conscious decision to say, I'm going to make this film because of the relationship that I'm in, and I purposely want to tell this story because these are the things that we face. He said it didn't matter. As long as there's a strong woman of color there, that's what's important. And I think that really speaks to the kind of diversification of white supremacy. We've seen it all the time. And what we will see is black men who are who that proximity to whiteness, that proximity to power and capital, that they so easily just shirk off their blackness for convenience, 
for their own personal gain. And we've seen this over and over and over and over again. And you're right. We are always on the front lines. We are the ones giving our time, giving our blood, giving our tears. Our bodies are there all the time. And we're always the ones that are so easily thrown away and erased. And what we see is that this art is a reflection of the reality that we go through every single day. This is, you know, bringing it back across the pond to to our side, Esther. I was in Wall Street yesterday in front of the bull, and, you know, there's the famous fearless little girl staring down the bull, and that, you know, means so much for capitalism and feminism and everything else. And I get what they're trying to say, but it made me so angry because it's clearly, it's a little white girl staring down this bull. And my question was, well, is she one of the 54% that voted for Donald Trump? Is she one of the silent masses that consistently doesn't speak up when it's women of color? You know, and, and Jason Johnson wrote a great piece in The Root about the attacks on black women in politics right now. And essentially, black women have been and continue to be across the globe kryptonite to white supremacy and patriarchy. We're the only group in mass, realistically, that just has not and cannot be co-opted. So the fact that there's this consistent, deliberate effort to erase our stories, to make us invisible, just goes to show you why our resistance is important and necessary, but it also shows you the power and the fear that so many people have of knowing that you have women who just, you can't flash a shiny object in front of us or say some nonsense and think that we're going to get on board. It's just not going to work. So Ridley, the fact that you're saying, oh, well, you all always want women of color and solidarity. I'm giving you that. And now you're complaining. And my wife is, you know, she's one of you guys. It's like, no, you're obviously not paying attention to the nuance, and we're not buying what you're selling. But you know what? In addition to the, the white women who voted for Donald Trump, we saw you know, the, the, the pink hats, and we, we see the white women. I call it the leftist All Lives Matters movement because we see this, this idea of there's All Lives Matter on the right, and then you had Bernie Sanders during the election who was talking about let's, let's all get together or we're all one, something along those lines. So there's this neoliberal push also to erase black women or to at least say that your blackness is not what defines you. It's, it's your, your womanhood because you're a feminist and these mm-hmm. are the issues that we should circle around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of mentality also leads to someone saying, it doesn't matter if it's a black woman here. She's a woman. She's a woman of right. color. So why are you fighting? Isn't this right. what shouldn't you want? You, shouldn't you be happy, right? Isn't shouldn't this you what you want that you want it? And it's like, right, but here's the thing, Bernie Sanders, you have no racial analysis, right? You're clearly not listening to us because we're not saying that. I mean, I think that's also part of this has been historically the problem with women's movements, you know, for the past 100 years. You want to erase not just race and oftentimes class as well, but in doing so, you are consistently saying that black women – In order to be in the club, it's either white women who are leading the club or you want to be white women to be in the club. And we've consistently said that's not what we want to do. And it's not just about gender. And so when you have the Bernies and the leftist women with pink hats who are saying it's really just about gender, everything else falls by the wayside, that's just as egregious as this nonsensical gorilla film that I won't be seeing. And it's deceptive where you had black women, especially around the the election in the U.S., who were so easily pitted against each other across this idea that there's a Hillary Clinton and you have white women and you have all these women and everybody come together. But let's push race to the back. Why are we being so divisive? You know, we saw that so, 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 so much. Why are we being divisive? Why does it have to be about race so much? So I think we have to be very, very careful that when there's not a racial analysis, 
then everything else, it, it just falls apart. There, It always has to be there. And the racial analysis is always there, spoken or unspoken. Even in the call to negate it or disregard it, that's the reality of the power of the racial analysis. The call to continually disregard it, to me actually, is the recognition of the power that it holds because it does carry with it, you know, the weight of a deeply traumatic and violent and particular history. And even in the current iteration of the liberation movement, if you think of the, the, the Black Lives Movement and the globality of that, even with the reality of the leaderful style of it and it being founded by three queer black women and how that gets rewritten, despite this happening it's within our generation, we physically know these women, we can see them. It happens again and again and again. So but this is my question, because the negation has been the narrative even though the history tells another story. Black women are without exception globally, whether you're here in Ghana, whether you're in Kenya fighting colonialists, whether you're in the Americas fighting the, the racist state, or whether you're in London fighting Ridley. And by the way, Idris Elba and Babu Sese do not get passes since Idris Elba's production company was also involved in this. And so the choice to not consult the history for me is inexcusable since you call it the story of a movement. But I come back to, and I, I want us to just focus in a little bit more on the way the resistance manifests. Now, I think in many ways, black women walk resistance. The fact that you can't be co-opted by shiny objects is a manifestation of your resistance. The fact that you won't be seduced or silenced by the consistent attempts to erase you in these cultural spaces where your stories are told. The fact that there is a, a Q&A and apparently they were all very taken aback when black women stood up and said, where are the black women? Why aren't there any black leads? And they were genuinely surprised, which just tells me, have you been paying attention to any history anywhere in the world for however long? So then it makes me come back to the resistance has been something we have done and continue to do. But do we need to look at it again and reimagine what it needs to be? The reason that I ask that is there is no break in the narrative of erasure for black women. I feel like you go from one set of circumstances, whether it's the pepsification of protest by that crazy advert that Kendall Jenner was in, the consistent belief that race doesn't matter, despite the degree to which black women go to say that it does. Is there something else we need to do when it comes to resistance? Kirsten Westervalli. This has been even more clear going back to the elections here in the political climate globally, really, is this push to kind of eradicate the concept of identity politics, right? And so we saw that around race, we see that around gender, we see it where let's just all come together around this particular issue and that what that does is that pushes the particular needs of black women always to the bottom, always to the bottom. Because if you have, we're talking about race, then okay, then let's, stop, let's not talk about gender. Let's come together here. We're talking about women. Okay, let's not talk about race. Let's talk about gender. And so what I think there does definitely need to be a reimagining of how we frame resistance. So, of course, we have to talk about the issues, but we also have to make sure that we bring our full selves always into a space, that we are black, that we are women, that our whole selves matter in any space all the time. And so there cannot be any negotiation. There cannot be any bargaining. And that really has to be, I think, central to any kind of resistance that we have going forward. I just think it's fascinating that so many people tell us that we're focusing too much on race and oftentimes they are not women of color. 
So how would you know? I see that all the time. I hear it so much. I experience so much. And then sometimes you have people who want to give out cookies and they want to talk about your right, let's come together around these issues and we'll be fine. And it's really detrimental to black women, to our health, to our souls, to our families, to our bodies all the time because people want to say, we can take it. We've been taking it. We've been silent, even when we're acting, even when we're moving, even when we're putting our bodies on the line, and we don't complain, and we make it look easy. We make it look okay, and we have to stop making it look easy. We don't need to shut up when we see these erasures, and we need to keep speaking out. So I think we're already doing a whole lot of that, but I just think that there needs to be a reimagining of what that means. And when do we choose to opt out? Absolutely. The notion that identity politics is over is a lie because we're watching it reimagined, specifically when it comes to white identity politics. That's what Trump's election was about. The notion of making America great again was about whiteness. It echoed the rise and rise and rise of a, of a white diaspora movement, white nationalism in France, in the UK with Brexit. And so... It's the idea that, because really what you're saying is, well, it's not that identity doesn't matter. It's just that yours doesn't matter. But ours has always mattered. And why you won't consent and concede that it must be centralized, I just simply don't understand. It's why you get all the backlash to a film like Selma by the the wonderful award-winning Ava DuVernay, who simply decides that the story really is of the movement. So it took a movement for Selma to happen. It took a movement to get the legislation that passed the Voting Rights Act. The simple desire to essentially put the story on the screen, the way it more likely appeared in the history, sent historians like screaming because the U.S. president wasn't centralized as the hero of the narrative. When I watched the anger towards the film because of that issue, I was reminded again and again and again and again and again. See, it's not true that there's no such thing as identity politics. The identity politics have always been white identity. That's the delusion of what I call post-traumatic master syndrome. You cannot ever not be the master. And if somebody's fighting you and saying, well, actually, hold on a second, not only are you not the master and you're certainly not the boss of me, that is going to create the kind of tension and friction and reaction we see all the time. So reimagining resistance is not negotiable. It has to be part of the strategy that allows us to think about a finite end to these kinds of conversations. But you know what? Someone needs to say to John Ridley, seriously, dude, wait one minute. Just wait a minute. In fact, you know what? Ray J, you tell him. <laughs> Ray J, little Kim, get right. it together. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, hey. Girl, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, hey. And honestly, the reality is we cannot afford to wait. Life is too short. We just can't wait. Ultimately, we, black women, black people, have to get back to real life. Back to reality. Back to 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 
I was born in London and it had a large and still has a large Jamaican community. And taking a trip into Brixton, which is in South London, for my friend's parents was like going back home to Jamaica, to Kingston. And for women like Olive Morris, who founded the Brixton Black Women's Group back in the 70s, Brixton, which was kind of like Jamaica, was home and horror, also known as Jamrock. That was part one of Reimagining Resistance, Missing Black Women and Girls from the Small Screen to the Streets. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Christina Greer and Kirsten West-Savali. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, New York, South Carolina, Massachusetts, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5. And we are on air in London on ABN UK Radio. We are also online. Subscribe to the Spin One podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. This is The Spin every week. One hour, one mic, three black women, and we go global. We keep it moving. part two of Reimagining Resistance, Missing Black Women and Girls on the Streets and on the Small Screen. 
In just three months, in 2017, 500 girls had gone missing in Washington, D.C. Very often, these girls are described as runaways or repeat runaways. Years old, she's trying to figure out why the world is so cold. Why she's all alone and they never met her family. Mama's always gone and she never met her daddy. Part of her is missing and nobody'll listen. Mama's on drugs, getting up in the kitchen, bringing home in at different hours of the night. Starting with some laughs, usually ending in a fight. Sneaking in a room when her mama's knocked out. Trying to have his way and little Lisa says, "Ouch." She tries to resist, but then all he does is beat her. Tries to tell her mom, but her mama don't believe her. Lisa. Stuck up in the world on her own Forced to think that hell is a place called home Nothing else to do but get some clothes and pack She says she's about to run away and never come back The story began to gain traction on social media due to anger at the mainstream media's near silence on the issue and the belief that law enforcement are too slow to act. In the United States, a missing person, especially a missing child, prompts an Amber Alert. But too often when it comes to missing black girls, there are no Amber Alerts. Politicians weighed in, asking for federal dollars to further investigate this particular issue, and there was speculation about human trafficking. And then law enforcement weighed in, claiming that it was greater publicity around the issue that prompted higher visibility. One re-emerging point, these young black girls are often repeated runaways. DC Mayor Muriel Browser has said that she will pursue a half dozen initiatives to, quote, locate young people who have been reported as missing, provide critical resources to better address the issues that cause young people to run away from home and support young people who may be considering leaving home, unquote. Robert Lowry, vice president at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, explained that people sometimes dismiss runaways as innocuous or entirely voluntary, whereas abuse within the home is often the trigger for a girl to run away. And as journalist and child advocate Dr. Stacey Patton wrote in her Washington Post piece, their repeated running away often reflects deeper unaddressed issues of violence within their home, physical, sexual, neglect, violence within their homes. So let's talk reimagining resistance when it comes to connecting, engaging and addressing this issue of vulnerable black girls, repeated runaways and the kind of silence, which I actually consider an emotional violence to the young girls and the violence that they face. Kirsten Westervali, let me start with you. I have spent a lot of time reporting and writing about the erasure of black women and girls. I even think about there's, of course, Daniel Holtzclaw in, in that case and how there was so much silence. The silence was so, 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 so loud about what happened to them. We have, you know, Renisha in D.C., and, and she's been missing for so long, but we are decades later, and we're still talking about, like, a JonBenet Ramsey or a Natalie Holloway, and, and the, this idea that white girls or white women are in danger is the nightmare scenario, and it proves that whenever there are black women and girls that are missing, there's a silence. Whenever they are harmed, there is a silence. And to this idea of framing them as runaways so that they aren't missing or they weren't stolen, so often the black women and girls are silent, and they're harmed, and they're in pain inside their own homes. This narrative around, oh, it wasn't that bad, they ran away completely erases the pain that so many black women and girls experience in their own homes every single day that we don't speak about ever. So it's something that 
we really, really need to talk about in a different way the quickness to say that our pain did not matter, that these girls did not matter, that them being on the streets did not matter, and streets that are, you know, infinitely more dangerous to black women and girls every single day is dangerous. Dr. Christina Greer. Well, I think it's also, there's sort of many sides to what's going on. I mean, for some of them, there are things that are going on in the home, but for others, they are being kidnapped, right? And I think that goes to the state not caring what happens to black bodies. It never has. And why would they start in the 21st century, especially when these aren't wealthy girls? And they had the town hall, and I thought that the photo was so telling that it's 300 people who do care about these girls in their community. They do want them found. And not a single non-black face was in that room, as if to say, they're your girls, they're your problem. But when it comes to a Jean Benet or a Natalie Holloway, this is an international incident. It should be all hands on deck. You know, and I try and help my students realize that the visual images that they've been seeing their entire lives and they haven't even put together a narrative in the sense that we've never seen a black girl on the television where parents are saying, my child is missing, and we're dedicating entire 60-minute shows, and we have talk shows talking about them, and the news is talking about them. And I, I really implore my students to think about, if you were an alien coming down from outer space, you would think that white girls, blonde white girls in particular, between the ages of 6 and 8 or 8 and 10, are the only children who ever get kidnapped. And the one time, the one time I saw a black child on the news where he was missing. It was a black boy. And I said, wow, this is really something. I've never seen this on the news where it's all hands on deck and we're looking for a black boy. And it turned out to be Jennifer Hudson's little brother and that horrible situation. But you had to have been related to an Oscar-nominated actress for anyone to care where you are. And so the black girls in D.C. and across this country don't have that luxury. Therefore, no one is looking for them except for their own families and communities. And I think that is a sin and a shame because when we look at the numbers and we're, we're close to almost 100,000 kids of color, girls in particular, who are missing every year and God knows what circumstances that they're into, we now see this is how serial killers in the black community can operate for decades at a time, right? This is how predators can operate for decades at a time because no one cares about these girls except for their own immediate friends, family, and community. And I think that that says so much more about our country than it does about our communities at all. We saw that in Atlanta with the, you know, with the Atlanta child murders. And yeah. this idea that, oh, they're just, you know, they're gone. Let's go on about our day. And there was right. a predator on the streets snatching by children. So I go back to Relation and the fact that Every time I see her face and I see that security footage and we see a man with her and people, it's like she's gone. She's vanished. She's a little girl. And it's heartbreaking because it's almost as if she's become background noise to some people, to this entire idea that she's gone, there's nothing we can do about it. But as we said earlier, you know, if it was a white woman or a white girl, it would be all hands on deck all the time, that we would never not see her face. Ever. Right. That's I think the, the fact that we're still talking about Jean Bonnet. Still. Yeah. To this still. day. Is, is she Katy Perry? Is she alive? She's become, you know, a legend in the minds of some people. Who did it? We have to find, was it her dad? You know, was it her brother? Were they involved? What really happened to Natalie Holloway? It's still, it's important for them to find some kind of closure or justice for these girls. Whereas when it happens to black girls, we just vanish. 
and it's not important. And there's so many other circumstances. Oh, because, you know, they can think, oh, this couldn't have been me. Oh, it was so bad at home. That's why she left. Oh, she was out being fast. Somebody snatched her. And it really goes to kind of the humanization of black girls, period. Mm-hmm. Period. And, you know, and I think about this, particularly being in the Deep South, I'm in Mississippi. You know, we see these narratives that focus a lot on coasts, the East Coast, the West Coast. And I see so many girls here who experience this pain in their homes who are invisible in their homes or they're being harmed in their homes. And that's not even talked about when we talk about it. So that's another thing that I really try to think about, the bodies of black women and girls and what they experience inside their homes, even when you see them. And they need escape. They need someone to save them. And you think they're okay. I think it goes back to this also deeper narrative, too, of, like, we feel no pain, right? I mean, right. the fact that it's a blessing and a curse in the sense that, you know, so many black women especially aren't addicted to opioids because we're never given opioids because we don't have pain, right? We can go in there and complain about our back and our neck and all these stressful things that are essentially killing us and eating us alive. And a doctor's just like, oh, I think you're fine, right? You know, you're a black woman, you're strong and pray on it, you know, whatever it may be. And in some ways it saved us because we don't see black women addicted to opioids the way we see everyone else because there is this narrative that we can take it. We can take the physical assaults, we can take the spiritual assaults, we can take the mental assaults, we can take the emotional assaults. And I think it's just a larger conversation about how Black women are not seen as equally human and never have been, especially in this country and in sort of, you know, capitalist societies across the globe. I did something. It was a piece about Ernestine on Underground. I know I know you guys watch Underground. And it's interesting that you mentioned opioids because it was about how we need to talk about the war on drugs. And it pointed out how we never look at the systemic structures around black women and drug use ever. And so, you know, not us, we do, we do, but it's never centered in mainstream conversations. And there's Sam Roberts at Columbia, he, he talked about harm reduction of color, you know? Are you, do you, do you I'm know laughing. Him? I'm married to him. Oh, my God! So, okay, so you know what I'm talking about, the harm reduction of color concept that we talked about when I interviewed him for The Root, right? And I had never really talked about how the structures that are in place and the need to reframe and reimagine how we talk about harm reduction. And that is so important. It goes back to so much of what we were talking about. Black girls are being kidnapped. Black girls are in pain, and they need saving sometimes from their own homes. And when they do leave, what is the real problem? What are we not talking about? What are we not doing? What are we not seeing? And so I think it's really, really important that we look at this holistically. You made a really, really good point when you talk about how black women are becoming addicted because we don't have access to it or we're not used to it or we're not going to serve them. We're not going to heal them. We're just going to throw drugs at them. And then when they go back out into society and they're addicted, then they become criminalized that way. Then you see people with their children taken away. You see them losing their job. For me, it's the idea that the pain of black girls, the pain of black women, interrupts progress and people have things to do so this is not the moment to deal with or focus on or think about pain i actually think this is a historical trauma that connects us globally and i think the legacy of that untreated trauma manifests in the narrative of absence i think black girls have been taught that no matter their pain they must progress 
the community must progress. The family must progress. Society must progress. So you better suck it up, deal with it, find some armor, find a shield and quite literally keep it moving. So I think there are always multiple narratives because the truth is they are not always cared about in their community that the first responders are not within their community. It is from their community that they're actually trying to run, that there are ways in which we're able to look into the eyes of hurting black girls and also keep it moving. I think it's pain reflecting back on pain and that the teaching that made us swallow the pain and stuff it somewhere inside of our bodies. And then, as I say, spit it up through Jesus or obesity or addiction or something. So it's never true that, I mean, it's always that the narrative of strong black women serves the erasure of women from both the small screen and the idea that they are on the streets. Because what are you saying when you're saying a black girl is on the streets? You're actually saying that she needs help. She's been harmed. She needs protection. These are all narratives that are alien to black female bodies, to black bodies, but definitely to black women bodies. And I think the way in which runaway black girls or missing black girls, the way that's treated in the media is reflective of how unimportant black girls and black women have been historically. And for me, when we talk about reimagining resistance, the first part of it is be willing in our own communities to sound the alarm differently. I think the power of technology is the ability, and we actually saw it with this story. Why it became a story was the power and the speed of social media to start demanding where are they. For me, I always connect things globally. So this was DC, but I also think about Nigeria and the 200 black girls who were just lifted from schools and homes and they were disappeared. And the length of time that took to become an international incident, the fact that something like 12 African presidents went to France to join the thousands and thousands of French people protesting the terrorist attack. But I didn't see African leaders from all over Africa or black leaders from America saying, we want to come to Nigeria and join you on the streets because for 200 girls to simply be lifted by a group, that kind of emotional terrorism will simply not stand it. The reason that it flourishes is because we have always, society has always allowed it to function. So then reimagining resistance when it comes to black girls is such a multi-layered thing because to really resist that kind of narrative is to do something radical, which is to say that black girls matter. Black girls' whole lives matter. Black girls' health matters. Black girls' absence matters. Black girls' silence matters. Black girls' pain matters. And what's the next sentence when we say you matter? If you matter, then we have to go look for you. That means the community has to join link arms and aims, as uh, Susan Taylor says, and go look for you. Because the fact that the three of us, I'm sitting here in Ghana, and you both are in the United States of America. We all know the name Jean Benet Ramsey. Jean Benet Ramsey is a little white girl who went missing, it was a tragedy for her family in that community. I couldn't draw to mind one of the black girls that I saw. I just remember seeing image after image after image after image. And the desensitization is as much an issue for us as black people as the consistent narratives that helped create the desensitization is for the society at large. The reason you then come to a political space that says, why do you keep talking about race? Is it starts with the black girls not mattering in the first place. And we see how one narrative joins another and manifests in an erasure that is total and against which we are constantly, constantly fighting. It's a painful power that black women walk with to insist on being present 
when so many of the narratives are constantly reminding us that we are absent. And I think how we change that is particularly hard work because so many of us are invested in that absence in so many ways and in keeping the pain private. Private, quiet, unseen, unheard. We may die slowly, but we are still dying. We're still dying. Closing thoughts to you first, Kirsten. I think we also have to talk about it's a win that there was so much community involvement around the D.C. girls. Because how often does the black community writ large come together to talk about missing black girls? This is not new. You know, we talk about black and missing. I used to report on this years ago. Every day, if, if we put forth the effort, there are black girls missing across this country who no one is saying their name. No one is really talking about them, but the people who love them, but the people in their immediate circle. So the idea that, you know, we have a community that came together looking, that we came together around these girls is a win for me. You know, because white people have never cared. You know, if we don't sound the alarm, if, if we don't care, they will never care. Whatever we take, whatever we demand in the way of justice, that's what we get from them. And I want to make sure that it's not our responsibility, that we cannot fix white supremacy. It's not our goal. We can't stand up straight. We can't do it better to fix this. It's that we, they will not be there for us, is what I'm trying to say. So this is, this is a win, you know. And then when I think about the idea, going back to Daniel Holtzclaw, is that there were other women who, even though some of them won and he's in jail, there were other women there who they didn't believe them still, even though they experienced the exact same thing. They didn't believe them still. They looked at all these stories and they said, you know what, you are too problematic. I'm not really sure. You were on drugs. I think you may be lying. Your story doesn't ring true, even though it was clear he was a predator, clear that he was. They just needed any excuse to tell these black women that they did not matter. The day did not matter. So I think it's very, very important that we look at the scene and we look at the unseen and we make sure that all black women and girls are brought into these spaces at all times. You know, whether they are poor, whether they are trans, whether they are middle class, whether they are on drugs, whether they are incarcerated, that we always care and we center black women and girls, always. And that, to me, is, is what reimagining resistance really looks like. Dr. Christina Greer. I concur. I mean, I think we need to, all of us, check our privilege as well. I think some of the conversations I've had, it's really about really thinking more more clearly and critically about black women and black girls, but also making sure that our class analysis is on point as well. And we aren't sort of siding with the side of the oppressor, consciously or subconsciously, when we think about some people who possibly need more financial assistance. And I think that no one is ever going to look out for black women except for black women, and that we can't rely on other people to do that. And so that is fully up to us to make sure that it's a holistic approach for us to be our sister's keepers. Malcolm X said it best. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Neglected, unprotected and disrespected, except here we're talking about black girls. Girl, I can tell you've been crying and you're needing somebody to talk to. Girl, I can tell he's been lying and pretending that he's faithful and he loves you. Girl, you don't have to be hiding. Don't you be ashamed to say he hurt you. I'm your girl. You're my girl. We're your girls. Don't you know that we love you? And the pain is black girl runaways know they are not loved, not by their society, and that 
their community in some ways has abandoned them as well. No, no, no. choosing to fight. They are choosing to fight. They're saying, in the end, who is there for me? Black girls, black women, just me. That's it. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Christina Greer and Kirsten West Savali. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This was Reimagining Resistance from the Screen to the Streets, Missing Black Girls and Women on The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global groundbreaking and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically. Future freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your policy. Intellectual property. Stealing, stolen, commodity. Souls controlling, robbery. Cold, lack of commodity. Clones, copycats, bother me. Mine on black, just follow me. Honestly, honesty, honesty. All these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's Fuji's autonomy. See you looking, but you better take, take it easy. easy. Tell your goons that they better take, take it easy. Here comes the rocket launch on take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex mommy, take it easy. You're good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend, he DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't lassie. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man, that's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity MC. I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, the ghetto might stroll with a nat, turn a flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the clue, club show. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. 
see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell your goose that they're gonna take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex, you'll be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. You know originals get plagiarized, majors, minors, my supervisors, climbers get scooped, and I applicators blind and stupid guys, wicked people choose homicide, drugs of society, heathen, the neck is bogus, misleading, and nigger, nigger, and reading, and antelitos, called Libra, and Chico, Chica's completing, and addiction, fiction, bleeding, and capitalism, beating, and misunderstanding, cheating, and the ignorance, defeating, and loyalty is leaving, and got royalty, believing, and eyes open, deceiving, and reconciling, receiving, and reckless driving, and leaving, and Matthew, and you and Peter, we about to reconcile, reckon, 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 we about to reconcile, bitch. We about to reconcile. We about to reconcile. Reconcile it come again. Reconcile, reconcile. We about to reconcile. Tell them shit get off my style. We about to reconcile. Reconcile it in again. We about to reconcile. Women with the men again. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stop the track. Which I thought I wasn't coming. Been in LA. Few flicks, few millions. Back with the Fuji food, fighting for a few billion. Dub play villain, some boy chilling. Any DVD we boy, let cash for me villain. Angela, Simone, Michelle, you know them willing. Can't fight the feeling when I cool in the SLR. Every girl up the ghetto superstar. Real hip hop like pinstripe leads. And I got love for my crew, like big half for C's. Pulling squeeze on these MCs. Man, I don't really wanna do it. Take it easy. I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy. So you goose, they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. We got El Boogie in the house. Croswell in the house. Clef. Jerry Wonder. Yeah. Big Row, I see you in the back. Let's get this thing started. Let's stay focused, 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 focused. Oh, if, if you don't know what's going on, man, the Fuji's is back on the street. Serious thing right now. You scared yet? This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.